Pregnancy and COVID-19. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster, good to have you with us. The Centers for Disease Control is now urging all pregnant women to get vaccinated and they say it has never been more urgent. Uh, pregnant women were not uh, included in the first round of vaccine trials and there has been some reluctancy among them out of fears of miscarriages and the like, but clearly things have changed. Joining us to talk about that is Anna Medeiros Miller. She's the senior health reporter for Insider. And Anna, take us behind a little bit the CDC's decision. What prompted it? Yeah, so for months now, the CDC along with a lot of other major medical organizations have been basically leaving it up to pregnant women and their providers to decide for themselves whether the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the potential risks because we don't have clinical trial data yet on that population, just like we do for the rest of non-pregnant adults. But a couple things added up to really tip the scale for multiple organizations, including the CDC. The big one being just research does keep continuing to come out in support of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. We're still, of course, waiting for clinical trial data, but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of good information on the hundreds of thousands of pregnant people who have gotten the vaccine so far. Um, well, also, go ahead. I was gonna say, what were some of the fears though initially? Was it about mm. uh, miscarriages? Was it about a change in DNA? I know a lot of people are generally anti-vaccine, well, not a lot of people, but some people who are worried about uh, uh, birth facts and, and autism. Yeah, so most of those concerns were in, in unvalidated pretty early yeah. on. I mean, the way that the vaccine is created, Experts, even before this data has come out, were pretty confident that it was going to be safe. It's not a live virus, so like the flu vaccine is recommended in pregnancy, it's not going to enter the cell's nucleus and go into your DNA. It can't cross the placental barrier. So there has been a lot of misinformation about that. And I think that can be exacerbated by this idea that the vaccine can produce or does produce, which we want it to, um, antibodies against the virus, or it forces your body to create the antibodies against the virus. And those antibodies do cross the placental barrier in a way that helps protect the future child also from COVID. But that doesn't mean that the vaccine itself crosses the barrier. How much more vulnerable are pregnant women to the Delta variant of COVID than the, the population at large? I don't know the details of the Delta variant susceptibility but I do know that it is um, a big risk for pregnant women. And the, the COVID virus um, in general is, is uh, much more, not much more, but pregnant people are um, at higher risk for hospitalizations, for ventilation, for uh, preterm birth and even death. Whereas when we look at the results of people who've gotten the vaccine, you don't see um, any sort of uh, red flags like that. So in other words, the, the fetus obviously is vulnerable, I suppose, to COVID-19 because if the health of the mother is in some jeopardy, if the mother's having high fevers and, right. and not able to bring in oxygen, obviously that would affect the pregnancy. Right, exactly. And a lot of uh, pregnant people were concerned about the fever risk in a vaccine because that is something we see as a side effect. Um, but then when you think about it, the, the, it's even more of a risk in COVID-19 to get fever and it's a lot likely to be longer and higher, which is really what's dangerous in pregnancy. Whereas if you get a little bit of a fever from the vaccine, you can take a Tylenol and move along and be safe. Anna, how prevalent are the 
the false myths that are out there in general about the COVID-19 vaccines, regardless of whether they're from Pfizer, or Johnson & Johnson, Moderna. I mean, is there much, I sense at least that there's a lot of frustration among the CDC, among the World Health Organization. Even the Pope has come out urging everybody to get the vaccine, but it feels like there's still incredible hurdles to convince at least a small part of the population to go ahead and get it. Yeah, I mean, the last data that came out earlier this month said that only 23% of pregnant people have gotten the vaccine. Um, which is lower than the population at large, and you know, understandable because we don't know as much about it. But it is um, it is scary given the uh, given the increased risks uh, of COVID when you're pregnant, and also yes, the emerging Delta variant and how contagious that is. But yeah, there's there's a lot of misinformation, and I think you know social media really perpetuates that. And these anti-vax groups really know how to strategize and get in. To these circles in ways that can kind of get around um, a lot of the you know Facebook restrictions and things like that. Um, I've I reported on one uh, doctor actually who had a miscarriage and had gotten the vaccine, and these anti-vax groups really like seized on her story, which she was public about, and and made this link, basically claiming that it was the vaccine that caused the miscarriage, and she had to you know go back and. And really fact check that for the public and say, you know what, actually, I miscarried before I got the vaccine. I just happened to post about it after. But, you know, the people that are susceptible to this misinformation aren't going to, you know, do that research themselves. And that sounds similar to some of the misinformation about a number of people say, oh, well, look at the number of people who have died after getting the vaccine, even though there's a certain percentage when you're vaccinating hundreds of millions of people. A certain number of people were gonna die from diabetes, cancer, health risk, old age, regardless of whether they get totally. the vaccine. And it's almost like there's a conflation of numbers that makes it so much easier for the anti-vaxxers to make an argument than for everybody else to say, no, wait a second, you're you're mixing apples and oranges here. Yeah, absolutely. It's the classic correlation and not causation. Is there a sense of some sort of campaign that the CDC, other organizations are gonna have to put out other than just saying, okay, now we're recommending and now they're getting the OBGYN organizations on board as well. Is there a larger campaign that they're considering to try to really put out the word to get to that number that you mentioned, the 23%? Yeah, um, I don't know of their you know, PSA um, plans, but I do think that it is a big deal that ACOG um, who represents OBGYNs is also recommending that uh, that they're probably more than recommending that their members um, urgently, and that wasn't urgently, um, urgent was the, was the word that the CDC used. ACOG um, said that their members should enthusiastically recommend the vaccine to their patients. And I think that is really where it will make a big difference because one-on-one um, -on -one if you trust your provider and they can really talk you through why they think that this is safe and effective and helpful for you in pregnancy uh, can, can really tip the scale more than big you know, announcements from organizations that don't really seem in, in your personal lives as much as your own OB. And when one of these organizations comes around and supports this and makes the recommendation, whether it's ACOG or anybody else, does it automatically translate into all of their doctor members saying, okay, I will now have a, pay, a conversation with my patients, my pregnant women patients to make sure that they're getting the vaccination? Or are there some doctors who regardless of what the parent organization does, will still say, you know what, we don't know. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be up to the providers themselves to Decide, you know, how much they want to implement this in these private conversations that we are not privy. Organizations yeah. as as a whole.
Yeah, I mean, the, the doctor, I guess, patient relationship, that's still a sacrosanct. So we may not get much data in terms of what doctors are really sort of advising. But, um, you know, right. talking to doctors and talking to OBGYNs, general practitioners, it almost seems like uh, the medical field still, the one thing, I mean, so many doctors, I was just talking to a pulmonologist the other day, said, you know, there's still so much about COVID-19, about the Delta variant, there's still so much we don't know. We don't necessarily know why it strikes certain people one way and other people another way. We don't necessarily know exactly how the vaccine is able to be effective in preventing the larger scale symptoms that people have with COVID-19. And I wonder if that lack of overall knowledge about how things mm -hmm. are working is somehow contributing to the fear, especially to pregnant women, their their partners and families who are naturally anxious about if they're gonna, you know, if they're gonna be any birth defects, if this is gonna be a healthy pregnancy anyway. Right, right. Well, I think that that's important for the providers to spell out. You know, I hope that they're not blanketly saying to their patients, you know, absolutely, this has zero risks. We know everything about it. You 100% should get it. Um, they should be spelling out, you know, there is a lot we don't know, but we do know X, Y, and Z. And I feel comfortable with you taking it because of these reasons. Um, and I've talked to providers, you know, for many months who've had that experience. You know, I don't think that this has tipped the scale for them that much. It's more just like, you know, they've, we're comfortable recommending it earlier, um, and now bigger organizations are getting on board. But you know, they've also always said it's it's complicated and it's a hard decision when you're pregnant. You're right; you are um, dealing with a lot of other issues and anxieties, and this could just be one more. And I did talk to a pediatrician um, early on who was very in support of the vaccine, but she kind of said the one line she would draw is just if somebody is so anxious. And so overwhelmed by this idea of putting this something in their body that they don't know about, you know, then maybe you don't, maybe you don't get it because you don't want to add that extra stress. Um, and it also, of course, depends on your circumstance. If you're somebody who can um, be pretty protective and wear a mask and can work from home while you're pregnant and all of that, um, it makes more sense for you to maybe wait for the vaccine than somebody who's in a, a service-oriented field interacting with people all day and putting themselves at risk. Real quickly here in general, uh, and you've written a lot about the risk versus benefit analysis. Uh, the benefit certainly is clearly outweighing the risk, at least according to all the major authorities on this issue, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, if you get the vaccine, you get the vaccine. If you don't get the vaccine, that doesn't mean you absolutely get COVID. Um, so I think sometimes we miss that. But if you do get COVID, the risks are significant. Uh, most people do okay, but you, you even if you survive, um, even if you don't have a serious illness, you could end up one of these long haulers. And then you're going into parenthood with brain more brain fog and more fatigue and everything else that when you really need to be your healthiest self. So um, as you can see, I am in support of, of the vaccine in pregnancy. Anna Medeiros Miller, she's a senior health reporter for Insider. Anna, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. President Biden and Afghanistan. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. President Biden's overall approval rating seemed to have dipped a little bit given the scenes of chaos in Kabul, Afghanistan, and much of the criticism that the withdrawal of US troops was abrupt and sudden and not very well thought out. However, there is a feeling among at least some Democratic strategists that this may actually be a political a super stroke for Joe Biden. In other words, that this may benefit him in huge ways politically. Um, here to talk about that is Chuck Rocha, is a former senior advisor for the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. Chuck, why would this be a masterstroke for Joe Biden politically? 
So let's just think about this and I would ask all of you to think about it just politically. What issue have you ever seen where folks agreed that voted for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders? And are these elusive, persuadable white voters in the suburbs? That single issue has been get out of Afghanistan. And that not another American life needs to be lost for forever wars or one more of my tax dollars going to rebuild a country when literally our country itself needs to be rebuilt. We can argue all the nuances of how it went down, the timing, the horrible images from the airport. But there's something politically that's aligned here that I've never seen before where you've had Donald Trump saying, let's get out of Afghanistan and end this war. And Bernie Sanders and the progressive left making this a pillar of what progressive values are supposed to stand for, which are ending these forever wars. I'm gonna agree with you. I do think that there is this unifying force among the Bernie Sanders progressives, some of the Donald Trump Republicans about ending these endless wars. But there's also a certain feeling I think that a lot of people have that these have to be ended in a way that is effective. And does the calculation change if in fact the Taliban goes on some sort of massacre, becomes a bloodbath and so many Afghans get left behind that help the United States? And there is this feeling that at least has permeated the media so far that well, America has turned its back on tens of thousands of people. I think you have to separate that narrative when you talk about it in the terms of pure politics and policy. One would be obviously if something bad happens, if the Taliban were, and I don't wanna use hypotheticals to do something that caused loss of life or massive loss of life, that would be definitely something that America would care about and the American voter would care about. But I think the more chaos, that happens there could also be used. And as a strategist, I would use that as a positive for the reason that we got out to begin with. After 20 years of war and trillions of dollars, this place ain't no better off than it was the day we walked into it. Is an argument I can make every day and twice on Sunday in a marginal congressional seat. There's also an argument that a lot of Americans simply don't understand Afghanistan, don't really care about Afghanistan. And therefore it's wise politically, if you are a leader to say, okay, you know what? The American people are not that invested in Afghanistan's success or failure. They are invested in the loss of blood and treasure. So let's cut our losses. Let's stop our treasure that's being spent over there and come home. David, I think you make a great point. We like to hypothesize and use this big names and these big words and these Ivy League professors who are on TV right now talking about this horrible thing that's going on. And it is horrible and we should deal with what we do with refugees and the way that we get our American citizens out of there and the folks that helped our soldiers every single day. That's a separate conversation than what I'm talking about today. The point you're making I think is the most Important. Right now, if you threw a map on the board and asked Chuck Roach, a 32 year political consultant, to find Afghanistan on one of the little globes that spins around, I ain't sure I could find it. And I can promise you, 95% of the voters who we're trying to talk to to get out and vote couldn't find it either. But they know how much they paid last year in taxes that are going to that place that they can't find on a map. Chunk, how important is competency in terms of comparison to an Afghan policy? And the reason I say that is because it does seem, at least some people in the media are saying this goes hand in hand. That to the extent that Joe Biden and his administration looks like it doesn't have competency in an Afghanistan withdrawal, it doesn't matter so much whether that's Afghanistan or vaccinations or anything else. If the American people see that this is an administration that can't do things the right way, regardless of what that decision is, that that hurts them politically. How do you see it? I think it's how you see these ads that will be run 12 months from now. And I remind everybody that there's not another federal election for more than 16 months. But 
In about 12 months, folks like me will be meeting with Democratic congressional candidates all around the country, either praising or not praising what the president did. They will be running ads that says that he finally got us out of an endless war and we're no longer wasting money on a place that can't even govern itself. Or you will see Republicans running that incompetence ad that you're speaking to David about that we didn't even have the competence to get out of a place we were in for so many years and spent X amount of dollars and it's still just as worse off as it was there. Those two narratives will be defining a lot of what you're going to see the talking points be around in these midterm elections. Joe Biden hopes we're talking about shots in arms, money in banks and a past bipartisan infrastructure deal. And Republicans are gonna be wanting to highlight his defeats. And this could be, they could one of them. Given how those issues stack up, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the country, you know, 70% vaccinated, still more to go, but at least for a while it looked like COVID was under control. Now there's the Delta variant, of course. Uh, infrastructure deal seems to be in the work. People have gotten some relief checks. How strong a, a, a resume is that for Joe Biden for the Democrats going into the 2022 midterms? When we're doing focus groups post the general election that Donald Trump lost. We're not hearing people's talking about worries in the Middle East or whether we are in or out of Afghanistan. When you ask them the question directly, they would say, we wish that we weren't there. But what we're hearing in focus groups are the price of gas is going up. The price of bread is going up. We need to make sure we get fully open and can my kids go back? This is a big one. Can my kids physically go back to school because it's interrupting the whole family's livelihood on whether the mamas and the daddies can go back to school or are they stuck at home working remotely and being a substitute teacher? These are the real life events that I'm not seeing too many political consultants talking about that I'm hearing from over and over again, which are these real life issues that are still hitting people in the mouth. And that would suggest then that if there is another you know, massive spread of COVID-19 because of the Delta variant or another variant, and you've got schools that suddenly have to close down again, we're back to all that remote learning that our kids were doing last year. That sounds like that could be a political disaster for Democrats. It really is, and it's one of the big disasters that we had in the fall of 2020. After going back and talking to folks about why they voted for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden, this COVID response question was a big deal. Democrats were telling people to wear a mask and stay home because that was safe. And Republicans were like, let's get everything back open and let's get folks back to work. Which in a place where not everybody was getting a COVID relief check. And if they were, it was very minimal. That was the message that was resonating with lots of middle class workers and lower middle class workers who needed to get back to work to make sure they can make money for their family. So shutting that down, David, to your point, would be disastrous for Democrats. That's why they're trying to do everything they can to get more shots in arms and keep our schools open so folks don't have to be working remotely taking care of their kids. And if they do have to take care of their kids because there are school shutdowns and people have to stay at home, how important therefore would it be for Democrats to get another round of COVID relief checks out there? Because I understand from your analysis that at least with independent voters, whether they're Latinos or anybody else, that if they were unaffiliated, their driving issue in the last campaign were these relief checks. It wasn't, it's because they were so hit by the downturn in the economy after the shutdown happened, right? So you saw different industries start coming back, but not everything has come back exactly like it was. And you saw a lot of loss. So the more that you can put money into those folks and into their bank accounts, I think that you see a direct economic recovery because they are taking that money and guess what they're doing? When you give poor folks and middle class folks money, they ain't saving it or buying stocks. They're buying more bread and they're buying more gas.
We're also seeing the argument from some more centrist Democrats, and I think of Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, along with all the Republicans, that wait a second, we can't be giving more money to people out there because we're gonna run up the debt, the deficit's gonna go even higher. How do those issues compare when it's a question of, okay, relief versus worries about the debt? How does that cut politically? Well, what you're gonna see is folks talking about, we still haven't spent as much money as we did on the Republican tax bill where we gave a bunch of rich folks tax breaks. And that's the way you're gonna see my candidates framing this. That it seems like this government always has plenty of money when we wanna waste trillions of dollars in Afghanistan or we wanna give rich folks tax breaks. But when it comes to making sure poor folks can make ends meet, that they literally can have money to pay for their rent and to make sure they can pay for their childcare. It seems that everybody is then clutching their budgets and worried about all the deficits. So we're gonna call malarkey on that a little bit like the, the, the word the president likes to use and say that we need more money going into the wallets of middle class folks and not so much into the richest people who've made a bazillion dollars during this pandemic. Chunk, how worried are you about progressives, about the Bernie Sanders supporters being, I don't know, disillusioned by politics because we can't get that $15 an hour minimum wage. We can't get free college education. We can't seem to be able to raise the taxes on the corporations and the wealthy. At what point do progressives start to throw up their hands and say, you know what? This political system is beyond broken. Is that a concern of yours? It's always a concern when you're trying to bring folks together, but we have a big coalition and we have already gotten more than we could have ever believed with Bernie Sanders getting this reconciliation through of over three trillion dollars. Like it was a big deal, three billion dollars, excuse me, not trillion, but that's a big deal. And we would have never thought as progressives that we could have got the things that are included in that bill actually done. So we're feeling very positive about the things that are getting done every single day. And what you're seeing is more Americans getting back to working with this infrastructure bill. Even the unions, the environmentalists, the social justice folks and police reform, everybody's getting something in this bill that makes them feel good. And we're not gonna let perfect be the enemy of good. 15 months until the 2022 midterm elections. I have a feeling we're gonna be talking a lot with Chuck Rocha. He's the former senior advisor for the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. Chuck, always a pleasure to have you on TYT. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, David. And on behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang at The Conversation and at The Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.